There's a book from years ago by a psychologist by the name of Paul Ekman. And the title of the book is Telling Lies. Eggman is a psychologist who did research on the physical telltale signs that somebody gives when they're lying. It's a fascinating book because he uses it in his, uh, in his psychology practice, um, particularly with people who have been institutionalized to help evaluate their words so that he can make judgment calls on their progress. He tells the story in his book about Mary. I'm a little bit strong, uh, Sam. They, he tells the story about Mary, who was a suicidal housewife. She'd been institutionalized as a danger to herself, and in the course of her treatment, she seemed to be getting better. In fact, she got to the place where she requested a leave from the mental institution um, with a cheery confident um, demeanor and uh, and the request went up the ladder it, it it was debated and looked like it might be a a good step in her progress Paul Ekman uh, videotaped an interview with her and spotted in the videotaped interview what he called a telltale micro expression in slow motion, he was able to see that for no longer than one twenty-fourth of a second, Mary's face sagged into despair. And when he confronted her with his conviction that she was lying, she admitted that she wanted to have one more opportunity to attempt to commit suicide. A micro-expression no longer than one twenty-fourth of a second, captured by slow-motion video. And yet his argument is um, there's no way for a human being to lie without some giveaway if you know what you're looking for. We're in a series of lessons from the book of Acts that I've entitled Church Blueprints. And we are looking week by week at the different characteristics that are necessary in, in this ideal of the church, the ecclesia, the assembly of the saints. The blueprint is given to us in the book of Acts. And in each chapter, we found at least one and sometimes two characteristics that are really necessary to take that first century model and to transfer it, to, to, to translate it, if you will, into the 21st century. We make a mistake when we say, okay, we want to reproduce the, the first century church, but we get lost in the cultural expressions of the church. Uh, there are churches here and there who, who um, have eschewed uh, buildings and campuses and and they, they really, they, they've taken the house church model because they said the early church met house to house and, 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 and that's the key. No, that's, that's the expression of the church in their historical circumstances. But I love people that, that say, well, we're going back to the, 
to the, to the model of the church. We're gonna we're we're not gonna ever meet together as as a congregation. We're just gonna have house churches. That's great, except in the history of the church, they did grow to the size where they began to build buildings, where they began to meet together. They they didn't stay for two thousand years in houses. So we we lose sight of of what is actually a mark of the blueprint. The blueprints have to do with what the church is more than how it finds expression in a particular culture. Tonight, we're in the fifth chapter of Acts, and what I think is a mark of the blueprint is that the early church, it was necessary in in the direction of God's plan for the church to have what I've called unwavering integrity. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. I want to read this story about two people who um, who have kind of a checkered uh, standing in the New Testament because of, of what we see here. But as we look at the first 11 verses of the fifth chapter, with this topic of, of unwavering integrity, what we find is that everything that we've seen, every threat to the, to the Acts church through the first four chapters has been external. It's been persecution. It's been intimidation. It's been the, uh, the local authorities trying to uh, lock down the testimony, the witness of the church. Chapter 5 is the first time that we see a brand new threat, and this threat is an internal threat. It's a compromise of integrity, and God deals with it in a dramatic way. We're going to see a a husband and wife who basically, um, by watching the other signs and wonders that are happening in the life of the church, they had an idea. We can fake our commitment. We can counterfeit our contribution. And it will be a shortcut to the honor and the recognition and the esteem that comes from the rest of the church. You're going to see that that God, through His Holy Spirit, um, judged this matter harshly. And and this is always an odd passage when when we look at it because because people say, well, you know, what did they do worthy of death? Well, that's where we're going to start. What exactly was the sin? that this passage deals with. First 11 verses, I want to read this entire account, and then we'll, we'll, we'll look at the historical background and find out what the sin was, and then we'll look at the blueprint and see why this issue of integrity was a critical aspect of, of the early church and must be just as critical in the 21st century church. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Actually, let's drop back into the fourth chapter and just read some some verses to kind of give us a, a running start into chapter 5. Let's go back in chapter 4 to verse 32. 
This is a summary paragraph that often happens in Acts at the, at the end of chapters. This is what's said. Now, the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Now, we talked about this last week, the the dramatic mindset that because what we do here in, in as a church has eternal impact, I'm willing to even liquidate my hard assets if that is necessary for the church to help meet the needs of those that God has placed among us. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, he sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we, we talked about this. It's just an example. He's representative of what certainly dozens of others also did. Barnabas, though, had some level of, of leadership. He was a recognized personage within the church family. And so as a representative example of the kind of individual sacrifice being offered on behalf of the, of the overall ministry of the church, he's mentioned by name. Now, the fact is, he's the only name we're given, but because he's almost certainly just one among dozens that the church would have recognized and honored and esteemed because of their self-sacrificing spirit, um, there was at least one couple in the church who thought, we'd like to be up there getting a little recognition. How can we get what they gave Barnabas without actually making the sacrifice that Barnabas made? Chapter 5, verse 1. But, this follows on the the mention of Barnabas, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Okay, so far so good. We're parallel with what Barnabas did. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. And when he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. And a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her. Did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, Why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly she dropped dead at his feet. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. 
Then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. Let's talk about this passage because this is um, a chapter that is, um, I think, often misunderstood or maybe just presented incorrectly. Let's see if we can make sense of it. This event served as a warning um, to the church that God takes sin seriously and He demands integrity from Christians in every area of life. The newness of the Christian movement uh, really required this kind of integrity in order to gain uh, a widespread testimony uh, within the city. Uh, Think about this. One of the standard questions, before we get to what actually was the sin, why did they... Why did God judge them unto death? Why was it that serious? I mean, the bottom line is they sold a property and they did bring some of it and make a gift to the church. Peter confronts them and they die. Why? Well, here's the deal. This church was newborn. I mean, it's... It numbers in the thousands at this point. But historically, it's still just weeks old. 3,000 people on Pentecost. The number is 5,000 following the arrest of Peter and John and, and, and all that goes on with that. But think about what would happen if you went from, from 120 to more than 5,000 in the course of just a few short weeks. What would that church look like? Well, for one thing, it would have a preponderance of baby Christians. People who, are, who, who have been convicted by the Spirit, who have responded in faith, who are enthusiastic about being a part of this, but have no idea. See, the, the, the disciples, the leadership, they've followed Jesus for three years. They sat at His feet. They've been taught. They know the Word of God. They, they, they've heard His teaching. There are others in the crowd, certainly out of the original 120, that had followed Jesus as they had the opportunity along the way. They also had heard Him teach. The, the bulk of these people who are in the church now, they didn't have that direct exposure to Jesus. Oh, maybe they'd heard of him. Maybe they had been in this crowd or that crowd. Maybe they'd heard him here or there. But they didn't have the three years of public ministry to build their understanding of Scripture. So they're at a very beginning place of what this thing called the church is actually supposed to be. What would What could sidetrack the church? The the devil starts with external persecution. But we've seen already in four chapters that that that's that's been almost immediately frustrated because the disciples in that classic response, uh, listen, you guys decide what's right for you, but as for us, we can't help but speak about the things that we know. We can't stop talking about Jesus. They were unperturbed by the intimidation of the Sanhedrin. So Satan does what he does. He switched strategies. And he decided if I can infiltrate the church, if I can compromise the integrity of the church, if I can create a scenario where, uh, 
where the the hunger for recognition, for esteem, for 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 people to to think I'm somebody. If I can infect the church with a with a spirit that says it's all about uh, the pat on the back that I get, I can ba- basically cause this infant church to almost be stillborn. That's what's at stake here. Well, what actually? was the sin well the sin was not bad stewardship it was not a lack of generosity it was not the fact that they didn't give a hundred percent of the sale price for a property that they liquidated for the church they possessed the freedom peter makes this point they possessed the freedom to give or not give any amount it was their property. This is one of the answers to um, to the faulty teaching in our generation that the early church was a socialist experiment, a communist uh, attempt, an attempt at communism. I hear that a lot. Oh, well, they had all things in common. Well, yeah, th- that is what the text says. What they had in common was the private property that had been freely donated by the people who had it to give. And they gave it so that it was available to any who had need. But it's not a a, a cultish thing where you sell all your possessions to get in. It's not a socialist or communistic uh, structure. Peter, in this passage, makes the point. You had the freedom to give or not give the total amount, or any portion of the amount. The sin wasn't about generosity or stewardship. The sin was a deliberate, premeditated act of fraud and deception. We summarize it in this word. It was hypocrisy. The church was brand new. It was weeks old what the Sanhedrin and the external opponents of the church could not accomplish could have been accomplished if hypocrisy took hold and became a character trait of the early church. In a a sense, their integrity, particularly in the area of money, um was a necessary piece of their public testimony to the city that was watching this brand new movement. In the in the previous chapter, it talks about how Barnabas received public expressions of gratitude. So in chapter 5, we have Ananias and Sapphira. They wanted the same thing. They sought the glory, and they were willing to use fraud to receive it. They desired the prestige... And deception seemed to be the easiest route. They wanted the recognition of great sacrifice without actually making great sacrifice. You see how the very essence of this sin was a compromise of uh, the reality of what is happening. The church was this remarkable place where people were being transformed. The, The sin here was they, they were they were trying to do church 
with untransformed minds. You can't live the Christian life in a worldly way. You can't be the church of Jesus Christ and behave like any social club that can be found in, in, on any street corner. There has to be something fundamentally different and it has to express itself in a, in the ability to have a, a, a visible integrity that other people can see and recognize to be authentic. They resemble the modern world, Ananias and Sapphira that is, they resemble the modern world in their ambitious striving to get ahead at the expense of others. I've called it double profit. They wanted double profit. What is double profit? They wanted prestige without price. They wanted honor and success without sacrifice. If they had brought part of the sale price and laid it down and said, this is our gift to the church, the church would have celebrated that. There was no minimum standard. There was no fee to get in. It was never about equal dollars. Go all the way back to the book of Exodus. When we looked at the building of the tabernacle, how many times in Exodus chapters 35 and 36 did Moses emphasize, let everyone whose hearts are moved within them to bring the resources to build the tabernacle. Let everyone whose hearts are, are, are compelling them, let them bring their skills to the table so they can be used. The key was it has never been about the dollars you give. It's always a heart issue. The sin here was not that Ananias and Sapphira didn't give enough money. It's that they didn't give their heart completely. They weren't moved to advance the kingdom through the church. They were moved to try and get some recognition for themselves. Well, you say, well, was that worth dying for? I mean, did they... Did that have to be the case? You see, here's the thing. Honesty, honesty never bothers God. I mean, we've got a couple of instances that, that I could call to mind just, just right now. Um, Job, for example. Man, Job, he railed at God. I'm innocent. Somebody's not paying attention. I shouldn't be going through this. I don't deserve this. Now, God does meet with Job, and he says, basically, put on your big boy pants because we're going to have a conversation. But God didn't topple off of his throne because Job was honest. Same with Jeremiah. Jeremiah, Jeremiah had the worst ministry in the Bible. For 40 years, he was a prophet of judgment. Judgment is coming. That was his message. In fact, we have a phrase, the Puritans coined the phrase, the Jeremiad. A Jeremiad is a judgment sermon. Jeremiah had 40 years of judgment sermons. Nobody believed him because judgment, wrath, punishment 
always seemed to be on down the road. It just seemed to never, because God was long-suffering and he always delayed as, as much as he could. And, and finally, Jeremiah gets sick of it. They treat me bad. They, they hate to see me coming. They make fun of me. They abuse me because I'm always proclaiming judgment. And then you're always extending mercy. And so in, in Jeremiah chapter 20, the prophet just goes off on God. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 20, you can't find an English translation that does a fair job of communicating the way Jeremiah spoke to God. You won't find any translation. Every translation will soften it. In Hebrew, Jeremiah basically says, you raped me. You violated me. And and, and I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not a prophet. I'm not going to deliver your message. You, you've lied to me. You, you, you've called me to deliver your word, and then you don't follow through. I mean, he rages at God. And guess what? God doesn't strike him down. Why? Because in his pain, Jeremiah was being honest. It's interesting that when we're mad at God about something, we don't go to God and talk to God. We go to other people and talk about God. Like we can somehow talk about God behind his back. At least Job, at least Jeremiah, in their anger, in their hurt, they talked to God with brutal honesty. God is okay with that. He can take your anger. He can take your honesty. He can take all that you feel and he'll meet you there and he'll engage with you and he'll walk you through that. But what God cannot accept, what God will not tolerate is for people to put on a show of integrity, to put on a mask of honesty and then live hypocritically and deceptively within the church. Say, so, well, you know, isn't it common nowadays that we say the church is full of hypocrites? Yeah, about that. Here's the thing. We sort of write that off as a given the church is full of hypocrites. Um, I don't know why we say that as though it's okay because that's just the way things are. Um, well, I don't see people coming to church and dropping dead. No, no, you're right. Ananias and Sapphira were made an example in the earliest days of the church because God was making a point about how seriously he takes integrity in this, this thing that is responsible for presenting Christ to the world. How can we make the world see Jesus if all the world sees is the world in us? No, God is not striking people dead. Maybe he should. He's not striking people dead every Sunday when we come to church, even though there are almost certainly 
um, hypocrites among us, probably all of us at one time or another, what makes this episode distinct is that, number one, it was significant to protect the church from this this incipient um, internal threat to the church's existence. But the other thing is they weren't just hypocrites. They were specifically hypocritical in a way that would have damaged the reputation of the church. Here's the thing. The metaphors that the Bible, that the New Testament uses for the church, they are not meaningless references. They're not, uh, they're not just given sort of as off the cuff references. When the church, when Paul describes the church as the body of Christ, his point is that like a body, each one of us has a particular contribution that we make, and the body is only healthy when all the parts of the body are healthy. You got acid reflux. Okay, well that's just that's just a part of your of, of your body, but but guess what? The whole body feels bad. You know, you kick a table and break your your smallest toe. I mean, it's it's like a minuscule total of of the whole body. But the whole body sits around groaning. It's not just a metaphor. It's a powerful image that, that this is a group project. We depend on each of us to do the part that we were divinely created, redeemed, and gifted to do. You have a responsibility not just to Christ but to all of us. That's why, that's why we ask you when you come into membership to sign a covenant. It's a statement that you want to live, that you want to carry out your share of this adventure because we need you to do your part in the body, whatever that part is. The Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. So, oh, isn't that just a beautiful metaphor? Yeah, but it's not mere metaphor. It's a powerful image of the church as the partner that that Jesus laid his life down for. Revelation talks about the church being presented. When, when we have a wedding, the groom stands right here with the pastor, and and everybody stands and they open the back doors, and the bride appears. She's wearing a dress, probably unlike any other dress she's worn in her whole life. She's fixed her hair. She's gone to great lengths to do, to, to do her makeup. I mean, I mean, she is in that moment. Her goal is to be the most beautiful she's ever been. That's this metaphor of the church. The Spirit is working among us because He is purifying the church. He is preparing us to be presented to the groom without blemish, to be in that moment the most beautiful we have ever been, for the first time spotless and without sin. The story of Ananias and Sapphira was in the earliest weeks of the church 
there was a husband and wife who said sin doesn't matter that much. It's worth a little compromise so that we can get a little recognition. And God said, okay, right up front, they need to see how seriously I take the purity of the church. It bothers me when people assume that because God typically doesn't kill off people when they walk in the church building after having a week of particular hypocritical behavior, the fact that God isn't killing somebody every Sunday when we come to church, we've fallen into the trap of thinking that our behavior is just not that important. It no longer matters. Sure, maybe in the early church, this was a big deal and God had to respond to it. But, but, but that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. Well, it doesn't happen a lot, but I have seen it happen. I know of a man who was so put out with pastoral leadership um, when I was at First Baptist Church in Dallas, he was so put out with pastoral leadership that he began um, a smear campaign by leaking stories to the Dallas Morning News. And there was a while when I was associate pastor there that you almost dreaded opening the newspaper in the morning because there was going to be a front-page story um, criticizing First Baptist Church and impugning uh, the leadership of the church because this guy was using a public forum to smear leadership because in, in somehow in his mind, he felt like this was a way to, to sort of drive out the people that he didn't like. What he underestimated is, while we don't typically see sinners fall dead at the altar every Sunday, he underestimated the fact that the church is still the bride of Christ and Christ takes personal offense when you try and damage his bride. I mean, think about it in, in human terms. Criticize me. I've got broad shoulders. I can take it. Criticize my wife. We're going to have words. You intentionally damage the reputation of the church. You do something by your behavior, by your actions, that is designed to lower the ability of the church to represent Christ to a lost and dying world. And God will not take that lightly. This man was diagnosed with liver cancer and died in less than six weeks from his diagnosis. You say, well, you, you can't possibly know that that was connected. No, I can't. But I tell you, it sure looks suspicious to me. He spat on the bride of Christ. Was he truly a Christian? I don't know. But whether he was or he wasn't, the same question with Ananias and Sapphira. Were they sincere Christians who just got sidetracked by this lust for recognition and honor? I, I don't know. There's no way for me to know that. Only God knows the heart. But I do know this. Their behavior 
became so toxic to the reputation of the church, just like this man that I knew in Dallas, his behavior became so toxic to the reputation of the church, God at some point said, okay, enough. And he took him out. Hopefully he took him home, but he did take him out. You see, just because people don't die every Sunday when we open the church doors doesn't mean that 2,000 years after this event, God is somehow more tolerant of hypocrisy. And when we say, well, you know, what are you going to do? Church has got hypocrites in it. We're, you know, none of us live up to Jesus. Okay, it's apples and oranges. The fact that we're not yet perfect like Christ is not the same as saying we're content to live a double standard life. That we have a Sunday morning presentation of ourselves and then we have a Monday to Saturday presentation of ourselves because from the world's perspective, they're not impressed by the Sunday version of us. It's the Monday through Saturday version that they see regularly. That's where they get their opinion of the church of Jesus Christ. And God says, you're not yet perfect. You won't be perfect until I complete the work that I've begun in you. But recognizing we're not yet perfect is different from sort of just shrugging our shoulders and saying, well, what are you you going to do? The church is full of hypocrites. No, the church better not be full of hypocrites. The world may think that, and they probably think that because the church at large in our generation has probably given them cause to think that. But in this particular church, we can't ever think that way. Well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a hypocrite. I, I, I know I'm a hypocrite. I, 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 I don't do the things that, that, that I mean to do. Well, Paul, Paul says that in, in Romans chapter 7. He says, I don't do the things that I, that I know I want to do, and I, and, and I do the things that I know I don't want to do. But Paul wasn't a hypocrite. Paul was struggling with this spiritual warfare between the new creation and the old man. A hypocrite is not somebody that is imperfect and still fighting with sin. A hypocrite is a person who's quit the fight and is just satisfied to live a double life. That was the sin. And it was so devastating potentially to the church that God could not let it pass. Well, look at the, look at, at integrity as a core value. What was the judgment? Well, beginning in verse five, you see that I've listed here, uh, revelation over commendation. <laughs> Here's the thing. They took the gift to the church, the the husband did. He lays it down at the feet of Peter, expecting commendation. He thinks he's going to get the same pat on the back that Barnabas got, that dozens of others have received. But in that moment, rather than commendation, Peter, inspired by the insight and the discernment of the Holy Spirit, Peter... uh, presented him with questions that indicated that there was revelation going on here. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? 
Oh, he's busted. Well, how did you know that I didn't bring the whole gift? And Peter says, listen, you were under no compulsion. You could bring whatever you wanted to bring. What you can't do is you can't lie to the Holy Spirit as though He doesn't know what's true. Do you see the insult to God in this behavior? I've I've primarily presented this as damage to the reputation of the church, which it was, but at its core, don't you see that this is an insult to the providential, the, the, the omniscience of God himself? This idea that we can do something and as long as nobody knows, it's okay. Secret sin, if we could just keep it secret, who, who, who cares? Who will know? Nobody's hurt if nobody knows. We underestimate this simple reality that God always knows. It was an insult to the Holy Spirit. Peter talks to him and he says, You have not lied to people, but to God. Listen, that ought to cause a little shaking in your shoes. Well, he didn't have time to shake much. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. And get this, this is why God did it. And a great fear came on all who heard. What fear? The fear that this thing called the church that we've been invited to be a part of However casually we may approach it, God is dead serious about the church. He is making a people for himself. He is establishing a priesthood to bring the presence of Christ to our generation around us. He is preparing a bride for his son. He's deadly serious about the life of the church. And this early church, Satan tried to get a foothold. He tried to establish the ability to sneak into church as a hypocrite and get away with honor. And the church saw that that is not how it works. There was revelation instead of commendation. But look look how it goes. Um, they attempted to cheat the Holy Spirit, and God's judgment was severe. He makes no provision for dishonesty among believers because it hinders the mission and it blemishes the reputation of the church. The church was awed by an atmosphere of purity in which hypocrisy cannot exist. Well, look at the next subpoint: death over dishonesty. In our generation, 
the reputation of the church has been damaged by heretical televangelists. It's been damaged by uh, the immoral lifestyles of highly visible church leaders. It's been damaged by the discovery of financial improprieties uh, within church congregations. It's been damaged by, and and let me bring it down to real practical, the church's reputation in the world has been damaged by the presence of gossip and slander in the church house. You know, gossip is, is what Jerry Bridges calls a respectable sin. There are certain sins that we really don't get too bent out of shape about because everybody does them. Gluttony is one. Everybody overeats. Everybody's too big. Everybody needs to lose weight. We all should be healthier. But because we're all in the same boat, nobody ever broaches the subject of gluttony. It's not something we talk about. Gossip is the same way. Because we've learned how to do it. Gossip is framed as a prayer request. Oh, oh, did you hear about sister so-and-so? Yeah, we need to pray for her, bless her heart. (laughs) Oh, you haven't heard? Well, just let me help you know how to pray for her. We just, we, 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 we frame it, we shape it as though it's something pious. When the fact of the matter is, when, when you're in a life group, let me just get real blunt. When you're in a life group and somebody shares their dirty laundry because they're begging for somebody to walk alongside them in their struggles, that is not your story to tell. What happens in life group stays in life group. If you're in a discipleship group, if you're in a journey group, if if you're in a mentoring relationship, those conversations are sacred and confidential because we are walking through difficult burdens with people. And their sins that they're struggling with, those are not our providence to go out and tell other people about. Their, Their struggles... It's not a topic of conversation. If the church can't have that mindset of confidentiality, that abhorrence of gossip, folks, we've compromised the reputation of the church. We can't invite people with a boatload of dirty laundry to come into the church if they know that that is just going to be distributed for all to see? So I I, I thought we're supposed to be transparent with one another. (laughs) We're supposed to be transparent within the relationships that God establishes. That's why in your one-on-one mentoring relationship, you share your life in an open way and that person shares their life in an open way with you and you link arms and you 
bend your knees, you pray together, you walk through life together, but you don't come up to the microphone on the stage and announce those issues to the church at large. Matthew chapter 18 is a perfect example. That's the example of church discipline. This, this process of calling somebody out of their sin. Notice that it's not open to anybody. It's you have a relationship with somebody. You've walked with somebody and you've seen that sin. You have the relationship to go and say, listen, brother, you're headed for disaster. I'm calling you to come home. No, I don't want to listen to you. You get another brother, but it's not some random Christian off the street. It's another brother that has walked with this brother, that has credibility to say, listen, I'm worried about you. you got to come back where it's safe. You're playing in the, in, in the middle of a busy street, and it's dangerous for you. Transparency is not random or, 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 or arbitrary. It's built on the relationships that God establishes in the church. This matter was so serious that rather than allow dishonesty, God chose death because he will not tolerate harm done to the church's reputation. Finally, the church over the individual. This is very anti-politically correct. For Americans in the 21st century. Because for us, the individual is sacred. You can't judge me. You're not the boss of me. You don't decide what I do. That's an American attitude. That is not a church attitude. In God's mind, He could take out Ananias and Sapphira because it was the church that was at stake. The church cannot survive with an attitude that we are just a random collection of individuals. See, that's another image that the New Testament uses that's not just metaphor. Either we are the family of God or we're not. If we're just a collection of individuals that happen to show up in the same location at the same time during the week and we sit here and we worship and we do our Christianity individually just in a crowd, how is that any different than rooting for your favorite football team when you go to a stadium filled with 80,000 people? What happens in that stadium of 80,000 people? You're rooting for this home team, but your contribution swells into something where the sum is greater than, I mean, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. You become part of something bigger than yourself. That's what happens in church. Your individual walk comes here and it is merged and transformed until you're a part of something bigger. That's why you need the church. We need the corporate part of the Christian life. God demonstrates that because his punishment for deception and fraud within the church was carried out because it was the church that he was protecting. So, man, he was hard on Ananias and Sapphira. Yes, he was. Because they endangered the church and the church 
is what God is about. That's why when people tell me, well, you know, you can be a Christian and without going to church. Can you? Okay. Theologically, let's just say it is possible to have a relationship with Christ, to be saved, but not be connected to a local body of Christ. Okay, I'll concede the point. It's possible to be a Christian and not attend church. Here's what I will not concede. It is not possible to be a biblical and faithful Christian and not be a part of the church. I've had a lot of fishing trips over the years where there were fish flopping around at the bottom of my boat. They were still fish, but taken out of the environment where they could breathe, where they could grow, where they could survive. We call them dinner. Can you be a Christian and not be in church? Yeah, but you're like a fish flopping around in the bottom of the boat. You can't thrive. You can't breathe. You can't grow. You can't live. Because this is the context where that happens. And it's an important distinction in the mind of God. Well, what are the implications? Real quickly. I, I didn't spend much time with Sapphira. She's, she's basically just... Uh, uh, Peter and the Holy Spirit 2.0. She comes in after three hours. She doesn't know her husband is not only dead, he's already been buried. She comes in. She has one chance. Peter says, did you sell the land for this price? Now, it's not a trick question. So well, Peter set her up for failure. No, he didn't. He asked her a question because the price he quoted was the price that Ananias had, had, had claimed when he brought the gift. His implication was he brought all of the gift as a sacrifice. It wasn't true. Did you sell the land for this price? Now see, that's a direct question. What should she have said? No, actually that's the amount we gave. That wasn't the sale price of the property. At that point, she joins the widow's class and she stays in the church. But that's not what she said. She said, yep, that's the price. That's what we sold. She's waiting for the same pat on the back that her husband had looked for. She, she thinks Peter is just highlighting for those observing just how wonderful her sacrifice was. Yep, that's the price. Why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? See, this was a conspiracy. We know from the earlier verses that they were both in on it. She didn't just get swept along by, by her husband. They agreed to pull this off, to pull the wool over the eyes of the church leadership. And Peter says, man, why did you do it? Instantly she dropped dead at his feet. And the same men that had buried her husband came and took her out to be buried. Verse 11, this is the implication. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. Now think about that. The implications, I've listed them there on your outline. The first one is that the, the Holy Spirit acts as the guardian of the church. 
No sin is so small that it goes unnoticed by God. One thing I want you to to catch here is in verse 11 where it mentions that great fear came on the whole church. That is the first use of that phrase in the book of Acts. It is the first time that the church is spoken of in terms of a single entity, the whole church. Their recognition here, I mean, there must have been sadness at the death of this couple. But the net result of this encounter was the church understood that the Holy Spirit was serious about church life, about a healthy church. He's the guardian. He's given to us, not only to give us the resources to live the life that we've been invited to live, but he is the one who monitors what happens here. And he knows. The second implication, God demands sincere church membership. The early church recognized that church membership involved a commitment. It wasn't a social club. It wasn't a fraternity. In the 21st century, if we're going to live in a church, if we're going to develop, if we're going to have a church that really does reflect the blueprint of the original model, we can't take our church membership lightly. (coughs) When we started this church more than 20 years ago, I had one pastor after another. I, I, I don't even know how many. It seemed like the number one conversation that I had when people would ask about Evergreen, they said, you're going to make them go through a class and sign a covenant to be in membership? Yeah. Don't you think that's going to scare people off? I hope it does. That's what it's designed to do. Because what we do is we try and communicate that church membership is not something that you just sign up for like you're filling out a, a, a raffle drawing at the mall. Uh, we're going to give away this car, you know, fill out this card. Okay, I'll fill it out, put it in the container. That's not church membership. This is life. We do life together and there's eternal consequences to the way we do life here. We are becoming what we will be in eternity. This is, we can use all kinds of analogies. This is spring training. This is, this is the runway. Uh, whatever it is, what we do here is eternally significant. It matters. And a covenant simply says, I recognize the responsibilities of a biblical church member. And I am willing to step up to the bar and try and be that person accountable to all the rest of my church family called Evergreen that has accepted that same level of responsibility in their lives. I'm going to let them come into my mess and I'm going to take the responsibility to step into their mess and together we're going to become the unblemished bride of Christ. Well, finally, God expects integrity in every area of life. Either Ananias 
or the Holy Spirit had to go. I mean, it was just that serious. The two could not live side by side in the church. Either the Spirit would be there or hypocrisy would reign. Now, we're back to this idea about, well, you know, churches are full of hypocrites. Sometimes that's true. But let me tell you this. If a church is full of hypocrites, you want to know who's always missing? The Spirit of God. Every time. Because our hypocrisy cannot peacefully coexist in the presence of a perfect God. As we move in the orbit of the Spirit of God, we will experience discomfort. We will experience conviction. We will experience that sense that we've got to get some things fixed inside because I can't be in this place. One of two things happens. When the Holy Spirit is present in a church, when He's active and moving and the church is, is, is living in that presence, one of two things happen. People get right with God or they leave the church. Why do they leave the church? Because I promise you there's another church somewhere down the road, some direction where I can sit and be unmolested in my spirit because the presence of God is not heavy in that place. But when God is present among a people, you can't have hypocrisy resting at ease. What does that mean for us? Well, it means all kinds of things. Don't claim more charitable contributions than proper on your income taxes. Don't cheat people in business and expect God to bless your tithes. Don't live life in a way that reflects poorly on Evergreen. (laughs) There was awe in this church, not just at the sentence of death on Ananias and Sapphira. There was awe at the demand of the Spirit of God for purity in the church. There was awe that his demand for purity was so powerful that hypocrisy couldn't survive in that rarefied air. One of my heroes is a man by the name of George W. Truett. George Truett was the pastor of First Baptist Dallas for about 44 years from sometime around the turn of the 20th century until about 1944, more than four decades, he was the pastor of that church. In 1925, the Southern Baptist Convention came up with a brilliant new approach to funding ministries. They called it the cooperative program. It was a strategy where they invited churches little and big churches of all sizes, they invited churches to give to their to, to the denomination to a cooperative fund, much like the model that we see here in, in Acts chapter 5, chapter 4 and 5. And as churches would give what they could give, big churches could give more, little churches gave less, but piling it all together under the leadership of those that had been selected for denominational leadership the churches were able to accomplish more in cooperation than any of them could do on their own. 
I mean, in 2020, we have over 5,000 international Southern Baptist missionaries around the world. We have about 5,000 North American missionaries, Canada, the United States, and Mexico. We usually call them church planters or other titles, but they're, they're domestic missionaries. Because we're a part of the cooperative program, we have a stake in 10,000 missionaries in a way that we couldn't do as an individual church on our own. It was a brilliant funding strategy. It catapulted the Southern Baptist Convention to uh, really to greatness. Well, so many pledges came in, churches committed to giving. Uh, the denomination went out, and they built buildings on seminary campuses, and they established headquarters, and, and they just went on a building spree in the late 1920s until... October of 1929, stock market crashed. The Great Depression began. And guess what? Churches couldn't keep their pledges that they had made to the cooperative program. And here's the denomination that had skyrocketed with expansion and buildings in every direction. And all of a sudden, they were faced with defaulting on millions of dollars of buildings. Nashville, where the headquarters of the denomination are, they met together with bankers, all the bankers that they had loans with. They they came to Nashville. There was a mass gathering of, of denominational leaders and bankers and, and they, they they examined the uh, the debts and they looked at at, at the the income flow and and the revenue that was being generated and they they did all they ran the numbers and did all the things that bankers do when they're afraid that they're not going to get paid they talked about foreclosing and 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 taking properties and, and all these kinds of things and at the end of a couple of days worth of meetings the assembled bankers came back to the leadership of the southern baptist convention and they said we know a man who pastors in Dallas. His name is George W. Truett. And his reputation is such that he is a man of such integrity that we will accept his word if he will sign all the loan documents. We won't foreclose anything. We'll extend the loans. We'll work with you. We'll make it happen. We'll get through this together if that man will sign the contracts. Well, obviously, he did. The convention survived and went on to become the largest Protestant denomination in the world. But it all came down to a single man who pastored a single church but walked in unwavering integrity to such a degree that even the money-grubbing bankers said, if he'll sign, we'll trust his word. And the convention signed millions of dollars worth of loan extensions because there was a man who walked with Jesus at the level that his word 
was beyond question. Folks, that's what the bride of Christ is meant to look like. That's who we're supposed to be as we present the life of Christ through us to a watching world. The blueprint for the church is that it must be marked in the lives of its people individually, in the lives of the church corporately, and certainly in the realm of its financial dealings. The church must be marked by unwavering integrity. Father, your word is powerful to us. And we are inspired, convicted. Lord, we don't want to take lightly the privilege that we've been given to be a part of this church called Evergreen, this body of Christ that that, that lives and breathes and moves in the Tulsa area. Father, Let us be unsatisfied with the presence of hypocrisy in our lives. Let us pursue holiness. Let us be hungry for purity. And let us live together as the people of God sharing life in such a way that the world around us in the 21st century recognizes that this is not just another institution on another city street. This is a supernatural assembly of supernatural creatures. And let them be drawn to Jesus because of what they see in us. Father, thank you for recording the difficult story of Ananias and Sapphira. And Father, never let us be casual about what it means to be called the children of God. We pray tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.